Over-the-counter contracts. The racetrack in Del Mar, California, deserves its reputation as one of the most beautiful in the world. A summer's afternoon can be spent watching graceful horses chase across dirt or turf, but the viewer only needs to turn her head a little to the left to be equally captivated by the wild blue Pacific Ocean crashing against the shoreline. While I lived north of San Diego, I was always so pleased when I could convince a group of friends to join me at the track for a day. Although I'm by no means a racing expert, I did grow up on a farm and even won some prizes for judging horse confirmation and once a belt buckle for the Grand Champion Trail Ride at the South Dakota State 4-H Horse Show. So, at least among my group of friends, I was willing enough to assume the mantle of resident horse expert. I must not have been very convincing, though. Very few people were confident enough to take my lessons about picking a race entry and then actually risk some money on that selection. So I developed a different strategy to get my friends' emotions truly invested in a race's outcome. You pick the horse you think is going to win the race, and I'll pick the horse I think is going to win the race, and whoever's choice performs the worst will buy the next round of beer. That always worked. Their indifference of, quote, not having a horse in the race would quickly get washed away like a hoofprint on the beach. If my friends and I had formally written out and signed those beer-for-race-performance contracts, that's all it would have taken for us to engage in over-the-counter, or OTC, trading. Obviously, that particular OTC contract would have been an unregulated and illegal gamble, but I'm hopeful the California Horse Racing Board won't come after me for bypassing their paramutual system. OTC trading takes place in a number of different manifestations. An investment bank could use an OTC contract to trade shares of a company to an investor, even if those shares aren't available through a stock exchange. They can also create more exotic hedges and write them up as OTC contracts, like an interest rate hedge or a credit default swap that will reimburse an investor in the event of some unfortunate outcome. Some OTC contracts are cleared through a central counterparty, that is, they're run by an exchange or large bank, similar to the process for clearing exchange-traded futures contracts. But other OTC contracts are just done between one buyer and one seller. It's impossible to put hard and fast parameters around the definition of an OTC contract because an OTC contract can be anything from my friend betting me a beer based on the outcome of a horse race, to a grain company betting its bank some money based on the outcome of the corn market in six months' time. So there is a great deal of skepticism about over-the-counter contracts. There is no particularly good way for a government to demand to regulate every asset that is traded between two private parties, any more than they can demand to regulate every beer wager I make. Where would they draw the line? What if, rather than trading actual stock in a company, the bank was just promising a financial payout that would mimic the performance of a theoretical stock? How would that be different than my beer bet? OTC contracts' open-endedness makes them impossible to fully monitor 
analyze, or regulate. For example, the extent to which credit default swaps, CDS, a specific variety of OTC contracts, played a part in the 2008 financial crisis is difficult to calculate because there is no official source of data about how much exposure the global financial sector had to those private, unpublicized financial instruments. So that's one problem of OTC contracts, if we can call it a problem. The market for them isn't transparent. The problem isn't necessarily complexity. OTC contracts can be as simple or as mathematically complex as their creators can invent them to be. But whatever bets are made, they can be made in private. The other problem with OTC contracts, compared to exchange-traded contracts, is the greatly increased chances for a counterparty to fail to perform. An OTC contract could match a March Corn Futures contract detail for detail, but it would be financially safer to make that trade on an exchange than to just have a piece of paper you could take to a judge if the trader on the other side of the contract fails to pay you what the contract stipulates. Futures and options are fungible assets in liquid markets, with an entire anonymous population of other traders willing to take the other side of any trade, and an exchange that will make good on its traders' commitments. OTC contracts can be similarly structured financial assets, but one trader needs to seek out another specific trader to be the counterparty to the trade. Having a specific counterparty and no exchange to back up the risk of default means OTC traders face as much counterparty risk as the traders of cash-forward contracts, and potentially more risk if the terms are complex. But for some purposes, an over-the-counter contract may be the only thing available to a trader. Let's say you wanted to buy beet pulp futures. There is no exchange-traded market for beet pulp futures. If you wanted to lay off the risk of the beet pulp price changing next year, but don't necessarily want to write a forward contract for physical delivery, you could perhaps find someone, perhaps a bank, to write a purely financial OTC contract with you, benchmarked against the price of beet pulp at a particular location, and take the other side of your trade. That swap would really be no different than a formalized bet. If the price of beet pulp next year is higher than today's price, I will pay you the difference. If the price of beet pulp moves lower, you will pay me the difference. But it's also not much different than a cash-settled futures contract either. So that's one application for OTC trading in the grain markets. Simple swaps that mimic futures or options contracts, but which don't have an exchange-traded market. Beyond that, the sky is the limit. The options on U.S. grain futures that are exchange-traded are a type of option called American options, which calculate their payoffs based on the difference between the underlying asset's price and the strike price when they're exercised. There is another type of option, Asian options, which calculate their payoffs based on the average price of an underlying asset over a specific period of time. But Asian options aren't exchange-traded. So if you want to trade them, you would need to find a counterparty willing to write up an OTC Asian option contract with you. 
Asian options are one standard form of exotic options, but anything else you can invent and mathematically describe to an investment bank or reinsurance company, you can probably trade as an OTC contract. The writer of the option, the seller, will mathematically model the risk of that position using its projected price sensitivity, time value sensitivity, volatility sensitivity, etc. From that calculation, they'll set a premium price for the option, and if everybody agrees to the trade and signs the contract, there you would have an OTC option trade. OTCs become useful any time a trader needs to trade something non-standard or which isn't available on an exchange. Another example might be a farmer who would have to buy a lot of natural gas to run his irrigation engines if it turns out to be a dry summer. So he might like to purchase an option to hedge the cost of natural gas, but only if the price moves higher than it is today and only if it rains less than a certain amount in his specific county over the next 10 weeks. Then he will need financial reimbursement for a certain small amount of natural gas each week. Natural gas futures and options contracts trade in blocks of 10,000 million British thermal units, which is way more than this farmer could use in a week. He could design a multivariable OTC contract to hedge that risk, one that would be triggered not only by the market price of natural gas, but also by the local precipitation, and which would pay out in increments rather than one final settlement, and those increments themselves would be non-standard. He may or may not be able to find anyone to take the other side of that trade, but that's an example of the kind of possibilities that get opened up by OTC trading. Weather contracts. One thing might have jumped out at you, though. Benchmarking an OTC trade against the exchange-traded market price of a commodity, like natural gas or corn, is easy enough. But how does one design a contract that pays out according to a weather outcome? It's easy, actually. You just have to find a data stream you can trust, and then you have all the same statistical modeling ability to calculate volatility and probabilities as you would have when using price data. The National Weather Service has literally thousands of observing stations collecting meteorological data all over the United States, and the data from those observations has been collected for decades and decades. So historical weather volatility can be modeled very easily, and the risk can be assigned a premium price, just like an insurance contract or an options contract, for a specific location's temperature or precipitation. Many industries are affected by weather, but perhaps none so much as grain production. A farm's annual output and revenue can be limited if... The temperature gets so low the crop suffers frost damage. Or the temperatures during a growing season don't get warm enough, that is to say, if there aren't enough heat units for the crop to develop. Or if the temperatures during a growing season get too warm, especially when the crop is meant to be pollinating. Or if there is too much precipitation, especially at planting, when it prevents a farmer from working in his fields, but also once the crop is already growing if it drowns the crop's roots. 
or if there is too much precipitation on an open pile of stored grain, and quality losses occur, or if there is too little precipitation, and the crop withers. As an example, let's say I was worried about my cornfield in Edmonds County, South Dakota, failing if it receives anything less than five inches of rain between June first and July thirty-first, and I estimate I could lose as much as ten thousand dollars in revenue. If the field receives two inches or less in that time frame, using historical observations from 1950 to 2011, the algorithms from eweatherrisk.com, a purveyor of OTC weather contracts, calculate that they would be willing to sell me an insufficient cumulative precipitation contract for a $2,418 premium price. Essentially, it would be a precipitation put option with a strike level set at five inches. The average amount of precipitation during that time frame for that location is six point three five inches of rain, with a historical maximum of fifteen point six inches. That was nineteen ninety three, and a minimum of one point nine five inches. That was nineteen seventy three. If this particular OTC contract would be set to reimburse me incrementally for each tenth of an inch less than five inches received during that time frame, it would have paid out over three thousand dollars in two thousand ten and two thousand two, when there were four inches of cumulative precipitation in June and July, and over five thousand dollars in two thousand six, when there were only slightly more than three inches. As another example. Remember how worried Joe Smith is about his corn not pollinating correctly when the summer weather was too hot. If he could calculate that he had as much as one hundred thousand dollars at risk if poor pollination reduced his corn yields, eweatherrisk.com might sell him an OTC call option contract for excessive heat units above eighty-five degrees. With the payout calculated per cumulative degree above the strike, crop insurance contracts serve a similar function, of course, to reimburse farmers some of the income they would lose in the event of a crop failure. It allows them to pay their creditors for the inputs used in attempting to grow the crop, and allows them to stay in business for another year, and therefore keeps the nation's supply of foodstuffs relatively stable. However, crop insurance payouts are based on final yield performance, pretty much regardless of the specific reason for the yield failure. Over-the-counter weather contracts aren't dependent at all on the crop's actual performance, but rather on a specific weather scenario at a specific location. There are some yield losses which might never be fully captured by a weather contract, underperformance by a certain variety of seed, for instance. And there are some financial losses which might never be fully reimbursed by a crop insurance product. Let's say an autumn frost doesn't specifically reduce a mature crop's yield, but it can affect that crop's quality and increase the costs of mechanically drying the grain. The buyers of OTC contracts tend to be producers or end users who have serious price risks to protect. And the writers of OTC contracts are generally trying to generate income from the swap fees or premiums. 
they must be very confident in their own risk modeling algorithms to believe they are being adequately reimbursed for the likelihood of the contracts expiring in the money. These institutions typically won't engage in OTC trading unless they can offset their own price risks, which include counterparty risks. Before anyone engages in an OTC trade, they will want to vet the counterparty's credit and have everyone sign adequate documentation. The International Swaps and Derivatives Association, ISDA, maintains industry standard documentation for OTC trades, including master agreements that spell out all the details of any particular OTC transaction. Land Investments Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote, A man complained that on his way home to dinner he had every day to pass through that long field of his neighbors. I advised him to buy it, and it would never seem long again. All it takes to be a farmer is to join some grain seed with some soil, water, and sunshine. This may seem like the ultimate arbitrage, selling grain against the purchase of its simple inputs, especially if one considers that water and sunshine can generally be acquired for free. However, modern grain seed is designed at the very cutting edge of biotechnology, with genetic modifications that maximize yield potential while controlling against various pests, and it's nowhere near free. In the two decades since 1990, Crop seed costs more than doubled relative to the prices farmers received for their grain. Soil is also far from being free. If a farmer doesn't own land, he must rent access to cropland. In 2011, USDA's Economic Research Service estimated the average cropland annual rent to be just above 3% of the land's market value and rent can add up to more than 40% of a farmer's total input costs. This proportion varies by region, but in the Corn Belt, about 62% of farmland is owned by farmers themselves, and 38% is owned by landlords. If a farmer does own his land, he may be paying a mortgage on the property. And even if a farmer owns his land free and clear, there are still always property taxes. So cropland is an asset that can't be left idle. It must always be producing something to pay for itself. Furthermore, water and sunshine may or may not be free in some areas, but they are not always easily acquired. Cropland without any artificial watering mechanism is called dryland, versus the irrigated fields of western Nebraska or California's Central Valley. Most of the fields in Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana are dryland, or rain-fed fields. In the event of a drought, neither for love nor money could farmers acquire enough water for their nascent plants to allow them to mature into grain. On the other hand, farmers who do have access to an irrigation system thereby commit themselves to spending money to transport water to the thirsty plants. A gravity-fed irrigation system of ditches and channels may not require a lot of financial maintenance once it is built, but the costs of running a center-pivot irrigation system, that's the tall sprinkler frames that sweep around a field in circular patterns, can be significant.
and that's all without addressing the cost of the water itself. Some regions may not have to pay for the water directly, but they may be limited to pumping out a certain amount within a three-year time frame, for instance. Once the water is pumped, some types of soils have better available water holding capacity than others, and respond more efficiently to irrigation. So, seeds not free, soil isn't free, water isn't free, but the sunshine is still free, I guess. It just may not be as ample in some regions as it is in others. Therefore, investors who are looking to buy cropland have a wide range of options available to them: a deforested region in Brazil, a chunk of prairie in Saskatchewan. For simplicity's sake, let's only consider the various regions within the United States. I mentioned the three I states of Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana. Those states produce over 40% of the nation's corn each year. Iowa, 19% at over 2 billion bushels in 2011. Illinois, 16%, and Indiana, 9%, and nearly 40% of the nation's soybeans. As these are the most plentiful crops we raise in the U.S., the prevalence of their production in certain regions is a good benchmark for identifying fertile, profitable cropland. Because corn yields are so large compared to the yields offered by other crops, typically, if a region is able to produce corn, they are economically motivated to do so. Corn yields tend to be about three and a half times larger per acre than soybean yields on average, although the market price for a bushel of soybeans tends to be more than two times higher than the price for a bushel of corn, and the input costs tend to be lower to grow an acre of soybeans. There's a lot of good cropland outside of the three I states, though. The Corn Belt is generally considered to include, from east to west, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota. Look farther west, and the average rainfall tends to be too low to sustain corn. Farther south, however. You will still find states that plant a lot of corn. The USDA reports that 18 states planted 92 percent of the 2011 corn acreage. In addition to the Corn Belt states, they include Colorado, Kentucky, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and Texas. But there are obviously other crops being planted in other regions, whether they are more or less profitable than the benchmark corn crop. As recently as 20 years ago, before corn seed technology was as advanced as it is today, the Dakotas were not big producers of corn and were more suited for small grains like spring wheat and barley. Today, Montana and the other northwestern states, as well as most of the Canadian prairie, are still more suited to the production of specialized grains or forage than to corn and soybeans. California's Central Valley is so well suited to growing highly profitable crops like vegetables and nuts, with its ample sunshine and ideal soil, that its farmers typically forego the more commoditized grains. The Southern Plains region of Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, with its long growing season and relatively mild winters, is well suited to growing winter wheat. Another relatively arid region that produces its share of wheat is the High Plains region of western Kansas, Colorado, 
and western Nebraska. Cotton and rice production in the United States is mostly limited to either the Delta region, that's Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Tennessee, or to irrigated cropland in Texas, Arizona, or California. Anywhere you look, you're likely to find a region that has developed its own unique approach to producing grain. Farming practices can vary wildly even from one county to the next, so it behooves a potential land investor to do his homework and understand what is or isn't possible to produce in a certain area. In any situation, once you've made your assumptions and projections, the financial wisdom of any land purchase can be modeled in much the same way as any other asset purchase. Treat the annual income from a crop or from farmer rent as a dividend and determine if the net present value of that income stream, plus its resale value, although many farmers might assume they'll hold the land forever, is higher or lower than the value you would have to pay at auction for that land. Your valuation model may handle the expenses and income streams as gross values for an entire parcel of land, but it's more common to see prices broken out on a per-acre basis. An acre is a unit of area equal to 4,047 square meters, slightly smaller than the size of a football field. In a square mile, there are 640 acres, called a section, from the days when the open plains of the United States were mapped out in mile-by-mile -mile grids. In a quarter of a section, there are 160 acres. This is why you've heard of the proverbial back 40, that's a quarter of a quarter section, or section lines, those are the right-of-way paths between sections. Most of the rest of the world measures land in hectares, that's 10,000 square meters. About two and a half acres fit inside a hectare. However you set up your valuation model, there are some nice tools that may help you gather data for your buying decision. Iowa State University has developed an index procedure that puts a solid number on any field to quantitatively communicate how fertile that cropland is. Every soil type in Iowa has been assigned a Corn Suitability Rating, CSR. A crescent loam may tend to produce higher corn yields than a harps clay loam, for example, and therefore receive a higher CSR rating. Land rents and land prices in Iowa are often expressed outright as a multiple of that field's CSR. To get the CSR rating for an entire field, one simply surveys all the soil types in that field and calculates a weighted average accounting for how much of each type there is. The study of soil types can be an endlessly useful pursuit for a serious land investor, and corn suitability indexing can be done anywhere. Just map out what proportion of a field is made up of any given soil type and do the arithmetic. For your convenience, the National Resources Conservation Service has already surveyed and created soil maps for more than 95% of the United States, and they're all available online. Math or no math, however, land investors tend to come up with all kinds of reasons to justify their purchases. Some of these reasons are better than others. In the years after the 2008 commodities boom, Low interest rates and relatively high grain prices created a surge of interest in cropland investing. 
This also happened to coincide with a number of farmers retiring. The average age of a U.S. farmer is nearly 60 years old, and other farmers wildly expanding their operations to develop economies of scale. Anecdotally, the highest purchase prices I've heard from auctions in the heart of the Corn Belt were paid by farmers rather than land investors. In one instance, the buyer bought the farm across the road from his house for a price that I would argue wasn't, strictly speaking, economically wise. But to him, there was some value in controlling the neighborhood around him, emotionally speaking, and also something to be said for averaging the book value of all the land he already owned against the value of that new purchase. As a farmer with his own, probably fully paid for equipment and local facilities, he could make more profit from that piece of ground than anyone else could. A long-distance investor who would have had to pay a farm management company and a custom farmer to produce a crop out of that land would not have been able to pencil out the same profit. And yet, in an environment with a very low risk-free interest rate. The relative safety of real estate and the relative scarcity of cropland make it an appealing asset class to many. They can't manufacture any more of it, is how one ag banker put it to me. I would simply urge caution against hearing one extreme land price from one auction, and extrapolating that all land would be worth such an extreme price. Aside from the differing potentials for production from one geographical region to another, there can be value-added differences between one field and the field right next to it. Soil types are just one example. Field A might have center pivot irrigation, and field B might not. You would not only have to account for the value of the equipment itself, but also for the increased yield potential on an irrigated field over the life of the investment. Yield histories might be available for review. Similarly, in hilly regions, one field may have terracene that prevents erosion and increases soil fertility and yield potential over the life of your investment, but another field may not. In regions with excessive moisture or very heavy soils, one field may have tiling that drains surplus moisture away from crops' roots, but a neighboring field may not. One field may simply have been cared for better, with less compaction or less erosion or better nutrient applications over the past several years, while another field's soil may have been somewhat used and abused. Perhaps a piece of ground would have some potential value above and beyond that of simple cropland, as a property development, for instance, or a livestock production area. There are a lot of idiosyncrasies that are hard enough to account for in a rational calculation from afar in a spreadsheet, to say nothing of how hard they are to keep straight when an auctioneer is pitting you against several other adrenaline-fueled bidders. Ag equities. The variety of publicly traded agriculture companies is wide. It ranges from grain processors to international traders, equipment manufacturers, fertilizer producers, and biotechnology seed and chemical companies. So there are many ways to gain exposure to agriculture and the grain markets, without making any investment more adventurous than a straightforward stock purchase. 
Far be it from me to try and restate the sound investing principles of Benjamin Graham or Warren Buffett. You'll be better served to learn about stock valuations somewhere other than in these pages. However, to the extent that a company's earnings may be dependent on the grain markets, I can offer some notes on how to treat that exposure. Grain processors. Examples are Archer Daniels Midland Company, stock symbol ADM, or Corn Products International Inc., stock symbol CPO. The first thing to know when considering the entire market space of commercial grain companies is that many, if not most, of them are privately owned. Cargill and Louis Dreyfus are among the largest processors of agricultural products, but they are closely held, and there's no good way for an individual investor to gain exposure to their business. Even younger, smaller companies like Poet, which operates 27 biorefineries in the U.S., don't have a public stock listing. So, calculating market share for a grain processor or evaluating it against its competition can involve a certain amount of guesswork. The second thing to keep in mind is that large multinational grain companies tend to have their fingers in a lot of pies. If the soybean crush margin is unfavorable one quarter, a processing company's ethanol margins or corn sweeteners business may still be doing quite well. Or it may be earning carry on all the grain it has originated and stored away in elevators. Because of their vertical integration across the industry, they tend not to be as sensitive to grain prices as you might think. They may have to buy high-priced grain to run through their processing plants, but they may also be able to pass on those higher costs to the consumers of their products. They are also likely to be hedged against changes in either their input costs or their product prices. Their profits are coming from basis trading, capturing carry in the grain markets, and most of all, from capturing the crush margins in their processing plants. For instance, ADM's stock price is positively correlated to the price of corn. But most of that correlation can be explained by the simultaneous growth in demand for corn itself and for corn byproducts. The correlation of front month corn futures returns and ADM shares returns between 2003 and 2012 is positive 0.21. Grain processing companies are suited to capturing the growth in the overall volume of grain production. Grain handling and byproduct demand worldwide, so their incremental profit margin on each additional bushel they process is what leads to their own growth more than their sensitivity to grain prices. Traders examples are Glencore International (stock symbol GLEN dot L) or Bungie Limited (stock symbol BG). Grain trading companies are similar to grain processing companies in many ways, and in some cases even overlap. Bungie, for instance, is also a processor of oilseeds, and ADM, of course, is also a trader of many grains and other commodities. Glencore is the world's largest trader of several commodities, and these aren't limited to the agriculture sector. It also trades metals, minerals, and energy products. In extreme cases, underlying commodity prices can have an effect on a trading company. 
For instance, when the global cotton market tripled in price from 2010 to 2011, some of the suppliers with whom Glencore held physical purchase contracts reneged on those contracts to take advantage of the vastly better opportunities out on the open market. That's a good example of counterparty risk in the physical commodity markets. So Glencore struggled to source enough physical cotton to fulfill its sales contracts at higher prices than it originally had on the books. Then the futures market started to slip away from the cash market too. Remember that the margin costs for holding futures hedges grow when the market's values increase and become more volatile. So even a fully hedged back-to-back commodity trader can experience extreme results. When the underlying market prices behave in extreme ways, but that's an unusual example. Again, with this category of company, the sensitivity to the actual market price of the goods they're trading isn't as strong as you might guess. They tend to be making arbitrage trades with purchases hedged against sales, and are therefore typically price neutral. In fact, the relative stability of their profits allows them to usually borrow capital at favorable rates compared to other types of companies. Lenders who are aware of trading companies' fully hedged, price-neutral model and who believe they have a disciplined trading system with little risk of rogue trades generally feel safe being in business with commodity trading companies, regardless of the behavior of the underlying commodity markets. Equipment manufacturers. Examples are Deere and Company, stock symbol DE, or Kubota Corporation, stock symbol KUB. The makers of agriculture machinery, tractors, combines, tillage equipment, irrigation equipment, etc., are another category of company that is suited to take advantage of the overall growth of global grain production and demand. But which is not entirely sensitive to grain prices themselves. Their business models are well diversified into other industries beyond agriculture, like forestry, construction, landscape equipment, public infrastructure, etc. But for the agriculture section of their business alone, you can consider some ways grain prices affect retail demand. Farmers are obviously more able and willing to purchase several hundred thousand dollars worth of brand new equipment, or several million dollars worth of equipment, depending on the size of the farm, when they are experiencing a profitable year. The useful lifetime of a tractor can stretch longer than a decade, however, so equipment companies must develop strategies to make new equipment more appealing than used equipment. And to sustain demand from one year to the next, that could be by limiting the amount of equipment manufactured in any one year, or simply by innovating the next big thing that every farmer will want to use. Fertilizer examples are Potash Corp. (stock symbol P-O-T) or the Mosaic Company (stock symbol M-O-S). Fertilizer is a critical input for higher-yielding crops. The global challenge farmers face as the world demands more food is not necessarily to put more land into production, but to achieve higher production levels from existing plots of land. That requires more sophisticated inputs, like better seed and more nutrients. That is to say, more fertilizer. 
Plants require nitrogen and other nutrients in usable forms in order to thrive, so fertilizer companies may produce and sell urea, anhydrous ammonia, DAP, that's diammonium phosphate, MAP, that's monoammonium phosphate, potash, a 10340 ammonium polyphosphate solution, UAN, that's urea and ammonium nitrate in solution, or customized blends of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, NPK, and other minerals. The agriculture industry experienced a sharp rise in the cost of chemical fertilizers in 2008 and 2009 because fertilizer pricing is not only dependent on farmer demand, which is directly related to grain market prices, but also very much by underlying energy costs. Natural gas is the main component used to manufacture nitrogen fertilizer, so fertilizer companies' profits are typically determined by the extent to which they can pass on natural gas costs to their customers. As it happens, the weekly returns of Mosaic's stock price since 2004 has a positive correlation of only 0.09 with the weekly returns of natural gas prices. But a positive correlation as high as 0.39 with the weekly returns of corn prices. So here indeed is an equity category with a strong relationship to the grain markets. Biotechnology and chemical. Examples are Monsanto Company, stock symbol MON, or Syngenta AG, SYT. Here is another category that shares some of the outcomes of the grain markets themselves. When biotechnology companies can develop higher yielding seed traits or more effective crop protection, like herbicides, insecticides, and fungicides, they increase the value of their products to their farmer customers, whose appetite and ability to pay for such technology is directly determined by their own profitability. American farmers have widely adopted the best technology available to them each year and have become accustomed to paying for that technology. Therefore, the real upcoming market opportunities for biotechnology and chemical companies is to expand the adoption of their product lines into other regions of the world, like South America, Asia, Europe, and Africa. This industry is notable for its fierce competitiveness. In the past, it may have taken decades for a seed company to breed and develop a new biotechnology trait into crop seed, but as these companies compete to find faster paths to the market with ever more innovative traits, they are directly competing for market share. They also tend to tie sales of their proprietary crop protection traits into the seed sales. The most famous example is probably the Roundup Ready line of products. Monsanto patented the glyphosate molecule in the 1970s, and its rights in the U.S. didn't expire until 2000. Roundup is the brand name of glyphosate, which is a weed killing herbicide. The real game changer, though, was inventing and patenting genes within seeds that grow into crops which are then tolerant to glyphosate. So even after the soybeans or corn plants have emerged above the ground, A farmer can apply Roundup herbicide onto those fields and kill off the pressure from weeds without killing the crop itself. That has been a great marketing tool, selling not only the patented seed, 
but the herbicide as well, as part of a whole production system. And other systems are now on the market with other pest-controlling mechanisms, like soybean seeds with resistance to the herbicide dicamba. The race will always be on between biotechnology companies to research and develop the next big proprietary molecule or mechanism. Agricultural Production Examples are First Resources Limited or China Agri-Industries Holdings Limited. Within the United States, actual agriculture production is undertaken almost exclusively by small or mid-sized private companies, usually family-owned. It would be pretty jarring for me to ever see Joe Smith Farm Inc. traded on the New York Stock Exchange. However, if an equity investor is willing to look at foreign companies, he may find a few opportunities to have direct exposure to agriculture production. Palm plantation owners, which produce edible palm oil, are sometimes large enough operations to be publicly listed. First Resources Limited is an example of a palm producer in Singapore and Indonesia. I hope it goes without my saying that careful due diligence is called for before investing in foreign agriculture production firms. Throughout history, farms have tended to be small, family-operated enterprises. Although the production of mined minerals or other commodities required group labor, it actually was possible for one human alone to plant enough grain on which to live and have a little left over to sell to his non-farming neighbors. However, there tends to be a limit to how much land any one family can physically manage without acquiring more and more employees, given the technology of the day. It was a benefit to ancient societies to have large numbers of small stakeholders spread out across a country's arable land. Through direct ownership of his own land, or through coerced fealty to some political state, each farmer would only be responsible for one small chunk of the earth. Once the food production by the peasants is assured, there isn't much motivation for the state or for large businessmen to become directly involved in farming. There's just so much risk. Crops can be wiped out by drought, flood, hail, or pests. Historically, it's been better to let those risks wipe out one small stakeholder at a time, rather than for a successful entity to willingly adopt those risks upon itself. Also, those in power typically find it more advantageous to pay as little as possible for grain, making it happily cheap for the urban masses, but also relatively unprofitable for the small farmers. It's in a government's interest to offer farmers just enough support to keep the food supply stable, but not more than that. So the tradition of relatively small enterprise farming has become ingrained within human society. Within America today, $500,000 in gross annual sales would put a farm in the top 5% of all farms, But that demographic term includes every roadside watermelon stand and every retiree who crafts artisanal goat milk soap as a hobby. To hear our relatively large, successful grain producers attacked as corporate farmers or industrial farmers seems pejorative and hurtful to those of us who understand the economies of scale necessary for profit, 
especially considering how, in other industries, a company can average up to seven million dollars in annual receipts and still be deemed a small business by the Small Business Administration. As it is, only two point three percent of U.S. farms are owned by non-family entities. Only nine point eight percent of U.S. farms generate more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in annual sales, but may nevertheless be family farms. Even that number is deceptive. First of all, that's annual sales, to say nothing of profit, and even the profit numbers for family farms are tricky, because the accounting of production costs isn't always separate from the accounting of family living expenses. Anyway, this leaves 88% of America's 2.2 million farms as small family farms, which own 63% of U.S. farmland, and most of these small farms rely on off-farm income for their household's livelihood. Of the 97.7% of farms which are family farms of any size, it is the large ones that produce more of our food. The farmers with more than $250,000 in annual sale, who I would argue might still be pretty modest business owners, produce 71.6% of our total production. For whatever reason, consumers are so intent on having their food grown by a little guy, they have been for many decades. Even in Gary Comstock's 1987 book, "Is There a Moral Obligation to Save the Family Farm?" He asked readers to try and think of any other industry with so much still quote in the hands of the little guy. As long ago as 1937, when Robert Diller wrote a study on farm ownership, tenancy, and land use in a Nebraska community, he predicted wrongly that quote the small farmer owning and working his land, the good old self-subsisting and independent family farm, these are probably on the way out. Tradition and feelings aside, however, I have to wonder what the future will hold for the typical legal formation of farming entities. Now that there are so many ways to manage farming risk with financial derivatives, the profit structure of modern farming may become more appealing to outside investors. History would suggest that large-scale, soulless farming operations have pretty grim prospects. Mesopotamian rulers and the Han Dynasty in China struggled to keep their citizen slave farmers in the fields whenever a better alternative presented itself. More recently, when the Soviet Union forced its peasants into laboring on state-owned farms, those farmers not only lost their ability to make individual decisions about crop production and input use. They also lost their motivation to innovate or to work the outrageous hours and tasks that farming requires. However, in 1989, USDA's Economic Research Service conducted an empirical study that showed it wasn't the wage payment system, or the inefficient input use, or the irrational prices, or the misdirected decision making that restricted Soviet agriculture. Rather, it was their slow pace of technological innovation. Maybe that study suggests large-scale corporate farms could be as productive and profitable as the current family-run operations, as long as they adopt all the latest innovations. If so, then I could be led to believe we'll see a Smith Farms Inc. trading on the New York Stock Exchange within my lifetime. 
However, the long hours and weird tasks associated with farming aren't trivial. It can already be difficult for American farmers to hire willing and able employees when the job involves working a 20-hour day operating heavy machinery in hot, dusty conditions. And why would an employee, who has no particular loyalty to the farm beyond that of an employee to his employer, embrace that kind of work? It seems to me that only someone who has the property rights to live on the land and pass it on as he chooses would be willing to contribute the blood, sweat, and tears necessary for a successful farm. Don't get me wrong, America's agriculture industry is full of employees with surreal dedication to their jobs, but generally no one should work harder on a farm than the farm's owner-operator, him or herself. Landowners' rights of disposition, that is to say, the liberty to control, direct, sell to another, or pass on to one's heirs, is the critical piece of the family farming puzzle. A farm manager who is trying to maximize the profit on a farm for just a few years will make different land management decisions than a farmer who intends to pass that land and equipment on to his children and grandchildren. Joe Smith could spend up to $20,000 terracing a hilly field in Iowa. It's questionable whether the marginal increase in profit he may see in his lifetime from having less soil erosion in that field would make the payback of that project positive. But wouldn't Joe do it to keep the fertility of that soil intact for his children? For his children's children. Because it's the right thing to do. There would be no good way to account for projects like that on a quarterly earnings report to public shareholders who demand fiscally responsible use of their capital above all other considerations. I can think of one notable example of large-scale communal farming with little to no individual decision-making, which is still very successful. The Hatterian Brethren are a non-resistant Anabaptist sect similar to the Amish and Mennonites, who in the late 19th century emigrated from persecution in Germany and Russia to the North American prairie. They believe in sharing their possessions in commons, and therefore they established communal farms across the region, with about 15 families per farm, which have been as successful at agriculture production over the past century as their secular neighbors. But it's important to note that they have always adopted the latest innovations in ag technology, the lack of which doomed those other famous communal farmers, the Soviets. Most importantly of all, today's Hutterites know they are passing down to the next generation of Hutterites not only their traditions and way of life, but also the land itself. It's therefore possible for farming operations to be both big and sustainable. As a society, we may be wary if farming starts to configure itself as a collection of faceless companies with relatively apathetic employees who just show up for eight hours a day and collect a paycheck, rather than as a multitude of individual families who invest their whole lives in the long-term productivity of their land. I think such a development would have long-term implications for the economy because I don't believe land could ever be as sustainably productive as it is in the hands of a farmer who intends to pass it down to his children.
But regardless of that prediction, I guess I could envision large-scale corporate farming happening in America now, and only now, that the markets have developed ways to manage risk, and now that the capital costs of farming have become so onerous.